Hey guys, welcome back to the Phil Krause Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Mike, and today's co-host is Kurt Hohan. <laughs> you always have to say my last name. Hohan. They know me. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, it's been a while since we've done a podcast. and We've had 15 cups of coffee, so we're ready to go. We're, we're super motivated. <laughs> we've been drinking co- coffee for weeks in preparation for this. We've been off the grid for a little while because me and you have been moving in to uh, our places in Colorado. We kind of kept that low key, and, and we'll continue to do that as far as where we are, yeah, geolocated in Colorado. <laughs> but it's been a pretty cool experience, and you know, we were just talking about this morning. This is like our first week off that we've had, yeah, in a long time. I don't know if that's a good thing. I don't know if it's proving to be a good thing. Completely unhealthy. <laughs> we've we've realized after analyzing our current situations that <laughs> nothing about being off for former special operations guys is healthy. We need to be working and killing. Um, if we're not killing, we need to be saturated and work immersed in it. Never let us off. You know, that's funny. You know, we could talk about that for a little bit because it relates to survival and mindset and stuff. But we were talking this morning and part of, uh, you know, some people would call it conditioning that we've experienced and communicated about is that when you're in that kind of mindset where everything's an objective, everything's a mission, there's no lull time in that. When you're low time or when you have downtime, you're working out, you're yeah. on the range, you're prepping equipment. Yep. And you don't have like a private life. I mean, I think the, the most private life that we have is the one hour that we get <laughs> underneath our fart sacks watching a movie. Yeah. You know, or being in your bunk by yourself or something. Something. But we yeah. don't have a lot of downtime. No. Yeah. It's, and so the civilian transition for us, not even, I guess it's civilian transition. It could be any transition. But for us, we're working for decades doing that. And now we're here and we got some downtime. It's difficult. <laughs> To say the least. Luckily, we have each other to help each other out. But yeah, to, to bitch slap each other. <laughs> yeah. Back into reality. Back like, into reality. Stop being an asshole. <laughs> yeah, I've been an asshole. I'm not going to lie. Part of the solution, I guess, is self-awareness and understanding that that's what we're at. And I think one thing that we talked about this morning is we needed to find a, not necessarily a new passion, but something that keeps us conscious and in something I, you know, focused on something. Yeah. As opposed to nothing. Yeah. And we're fucking walking <laughs> you, around like Vacations, zombies. like, it's supposed to be relaxing and it's not. We're fucking stressed out. I know, dude. <laughs> it, it's confusing to me. I, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's completely confusing. Even, yeah, I don't know. Even when I went, I told you this, when I went to uh, a beautiful park here called Messi Verde, I was just like bored, like looking around, like, yeah. Yeah. And that's, I, I don't know why. I don't know, maybe it's because I don't feel like I deserve a break. Whatever it is, it's it's mind-boggling. All right. <laughs> yeah, we digress. Yeah. Ah. So, yeah, if you if you have solutions or answers for us. <laughs> you know what's funny? We, we actually talked about this morning, and, and I've mentioned, and I really want a solution, is I want, a, I, want a, I want a hobby. I want something to do that takes my mind off of thinking. Yeah, because that's what our problem is. We think too much. Well, another I think another thing too that's always been an interesting kind of phenomenon is uh, you look at special operations guys when they get out and they did all these um, they did all these things when they were on active duty. You know, whether it was combat operations or the training, you know, free fall training and sniper training and doing direct action and all this cool stuff that you know people look at from the outside and they're everybody's, uh, you know, like, holy shit, these guys do all this crazy stuff. And then when you leave that, it's uh, obviously trying to find something that you're passionate about, or it, it requires the same attention to detail to be successful. And, and that's, I think that's where a lot of vets struggle in general, is uh, just finding a something to be passionate about, about again. So yeah, pe- most people associate that with like, oh, you need the adrenaline. Yeah, but we tell people all the time. I don't think it. We, yeah, we don't get. I don't get adrenaline from jumping. After you jump the first ten times, yeah, then it's work. It's just work. <laughs> it, and I think that's like you, what you what you just said is that's what we miss. We don't miss the adrenaline because it's jumping out of an airplane to me is the same thing as shooting a sniper rifle in the, in the prone. But we're accomplishing things 
right. objectively. We're looking at things. We're analyzing information. Working towards the mission. It's a thinking man's game. Yeah. And now we're here, and civilian life is super easy as far as living, I think. Right. But now you have this overactive, productive mind, and you're analyzing everything, every fucking thing. <laughs> like, dude, I, I am a hyper vigilant, not in the sense of paranoia, but in the sense of of observation of things. Right. And now I'm looking at the world like it's fucking, it's uh, <laughs> it's trying to get me yeah. or something. You know, it's fucking weird, man. Uh, we're fucking weirdos. <laughs> All right, so let's get back to the survival <laughs> podcast. Yeah. Now that we've digressed into yeah. our psychology. Now that you guys are judging us, <laughs> yeah. let's move on to more pertinent stuff. So what are we talking about today? Overseas travel. Oh, that's right. I think actually uh, we've had a couple people DM us and we, they wanted to talk about uh, overseas travel, some preparedness uh, stuff to keep them safe, their families safe, which, hey, that totally makes sense to us. Uh, Mike and I are both uh, friends with guys that uh, that do this, you know, protective type work, if you will, on airliners and things like that. And, um, you know, I've had the opportunity to discuss a lot of different things based off both our personal experience, our professional experience, and then guys that do some of that stuff for a living where they're making sure that folks are safe that are doing overseas travel. So we hope that this is going to be a good episode. Yeah, we look forward to it. And, uh, if you guys get a lot of stuff out of it, I'm sure it leads to other broader questions and, and you know, even stuff that we could pin down because there's full of subjects and full of different oh, yeah. paths. Just like everything. Yeah. Down, we're down like 50 different rabbit holes once we really start digging in. Yeah. We'll try to make this a little bit more structured and then uh, I'll break it down so, so it's intelligible for you guys to understand. All right. So overseas travel, you know, when I started deploying outside of the military, because, you know, when we deployed in the military, one of my favorite things to do, because we did it so frequently, was to get my fart sack, take an Ambien on a C-17, <laughs> yeah. and and tether myself to the inside of the airplane. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because, you know, and this is... drool for 16 oh, hours. <laughs> wake up in, in, war, in a war zone. Yeah. Whenever we flew overseas, um, C-17s that were flying us, typically knew we were special operations guys. So the way we rolled was differently. Cause I know big army, they don't let them get yeah. out of their seats. Yeah. So you got to sit in a bucket seat in the back of C-17 for Ooh. eight to nine hours. Yeah. That, that doesn't sound fun. Yeah, absolutely not. But they would let us, if you haven't been on a C-17 before, you're in a cargo plane. Yep. Except it's ginormous. You got all your stuff. All your vehicles are back yeah. there. And then they typically allowed us to uh, get out of our seats as long as we aircraft hooked ourselves up to the inside of the bird somewhere. So you basically use a aircraft lanyard, yeah. hook it into the aircraft, which is weird. I can remember a couple trips where they were pretty lax and didn't even worry about that oh, yeah. with us. As long as our gear was yeah. attached to something usually, yeah. then the the loadies were pretty cool about it. So we just throw out our puss pads and yeah. you know, your whoopee or whatever. And <laughs> I always like the new guy, the new guy who never brought like a puss pad. <laughs> And now he has to sleep on the the cold ass floor at altitude. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's freezing in (laughs) those places. And, you know, once you get a little seasoned, you had like a, I mean, I had a whole routine, dude, like D ringing. You have to have a D ring on your bag because (laughs) I, which I still do today. Hook it to an ISU 90. Yeah. Hook it up to an ISU 90. You pull out your fart sack, you get in it. And if you don't know what an ISU 90 is, it's a, it's a shipping container that we typically would pack all of our gear in, you know, and it's, uh, I don't know. It looks like a big cube with yeah, doors that you strap yourself to. Yeah, it was awesome. But anyways, doing doing those kind of uh, trips, it's routine. Yeah. And the thing about overseas travel, especially for people who are who are frequently doing it, there's really nothing routine about it because it changes depending on, you know, atmospherics, whether it's location. terrorism, location, geographical yeah. location, weather. So when I started contracting for uh, the government. You know, I was flying over as a civilian, mm-hmm. completely different, especially when you're flying into shitholes, for lack of a better term, Yeah, like Libya and Yemen, Yeah, which are volatile as shit. I mean, one day you fly in, you're good. The next day, an airplane takes anti-aircraft fire, and now the airpl- airport shut down. The DHL plane takes a, yeah. a stinger to the wing. <laughs> Dude, insane that place, those places were. But I learned a lot, I think, especially when it came to 
considerations for travel. Absolutely. And you have that same experience too, because you did some trips in a, I don't know, semi-permissive permissive environment. environment. You call yep. it. Yeah. So, you know, I guess technically it would be outside the war zone um, is the way they're described, but uh, obviously still, you know, potentially dangerous places depending on what's going on in the country. So um, I had the opportunity to do several of those trips. So um, the interesting thing I think about talking about some of this stuff is Mike and I have a lot of experience with some pretty dangerous places in the world. Um, so, you know, we tend to plan uh, pretty heavily on the overseas travel stuff and how we do things. Um, I think the, you know, again, the interesting part of this is, you know, you could take the very extreme and then you could potentially dial it down for, you know, potential travel to Europe or wherever you're going. But hey, you know, with everything going on in the world today, I mean, who knows what can happen, when it's going to happen. So just just thinking about things, I think, and being a little bit prepared is not a, a, a stupid thing to do. You, you mentioned it, and I think this leads into leads us into the first part of this is uh, with planning considerations. That's the first thing you do, right? We, we do it in special operations by start analyzing available open source yep, data. And, and data, right? Yeah. What are some you, you're talking about this morning, but what are some good open source resources that you can do do country research before you fly? Yeah, I mean, so obviously one is is, uh, you know, depending on what kind of a media outlet you're using. Uh, hey, you know, re irregardless or regardless of whether or not you like the news agency or not, we look at a lot of different things. So whether it's CNN, Fox News, BBC, um, any of those outlets, right? And just seeing what's going on in the world, you know, if there's a hot spot in the Ukraine or there's something going on in Central Asia or wherever you're going to travel, hey, that could be the first place that you start to gather data. Another great resource is state.gov. And Mike and I were actually talking about that this morning. Um, the US State Department has a website, state.gov, um, that actually has a, uh, a section called preparing for a trip abroad. Um, and you can read current travel warnings, sign up for smart traveler enrollment program. Um, there's all kinds of stuff in there, travel tips. Um, but this is all like basic information um, that if you don't have any background in planning, then, you know, hey, these are some good resources to go to. So one, obviously, is media just to see what's going on in the world. And then two is kind of drilling down a little bit further um, and go into this, this state.gov site. And you can actually go even further in the state.gov site and you can pull information. If we have an embassy in that country, you can pull information from that embassy and they're gonna have probably some of the most up-to-date information because they're actually on the ground in country. Yeah, and that, especially if we're doing like Africa oh, yeah. and anywhere in the Middle East, it's, you know, like where you say it's like fragile, th those things change daily. Absolutely, yeah. So yeah. O open source, we, we call it map reconnaissance. Like, you know, that's an, I think that's a, a broader term for not just literally doing map reconnaissance, but taking data, uh, simulating data, and then trying to get a better picture of what you're going into. Yep. And it could even be a vacation. I know a friend of mine, uh, Megan, was traveling to Greece and we had talked about some considerations prior to her going. Well, you know, if you look at some of the sites, that talk about Greece, some of them are, you know, they're skewed in their overall perspective. So they they might illustrate it as like this crime ridden, right? You know, destination of hell, and you don't want to go there. Other people might try to, you know, church it up and make it seem like there's nothing going on there, right? Um, so you have to be careful with the you source read, that read you analyze. between the lines, kind of. And yeah, and and find the balance. I remember being a government contractor over the last few years and talking to a lot of guys who were with us as contractors when we were in the war zone. Mm -hmm. And these dudes were traveling around in the middle of Iraq and Afghanistan, just a couple dudes yep. by themselves. And, you know, for us in special operations that were doing nightly night operations, it wasn't this big, scary place. I mean, we, you know, when you kick a terrorist in the face, I mean, and he's, and he's crying to his mom, <laughs> then he's not a real bad ass Al Qaeda operative. He's just a shithead who wants his mommy. So you see the real world outside of the gate. But I think about those kids who are in the fire bases and they have this like paranoia of the unknown. Yeah. And so a lot of these countries that are even high risk, they're not really that high risk. Yeah. Statistically, I remember being in Libya 
and having discussions with my guys and trying to balance the S2, the intelligence staffing at the headquarters that were painting this picture of this of Somalia. Right. They're like, this place is out of control. There's checkpoints everywhere. And the, one of the lieutenant colonels that was in charge of it, he said, uh, there's checkpoints everywhere. I said, yeah, there's checkpoints because of traffic. Those aren't checkpoints. They're stopping vehicles at, tra- at traffic lights, and then they're waving in through. It's not an actual checkpoint where they're pulling people out of the cars. Right. But if you look on ISR from overhead, it looks like this you know, devastated situation. Mm-hmm. And they make it seem like something it's not. Right. And I look at the statistics, and Chicago <laughs> is 10 times more dangerous than you know, Libya. Yeah. And so it's, you know, you have to balance that. You know, if I think one is find open resource or open site resources, communicate to people who've been there, done that. Yeah. Especially the locals who live, you know, they're expats potentially. Mm-hmm. Email them, text them, communicate with uh, people on forums to, to get the real picture of how, how awesome it might be. Right. But I think, uh, you know, you're making a great point. And I think the key to everything is multiple sources. So you're not just getting fed information from one, you know, single source that says it's like this and that's the only way it is. So if you're pulling, you know, like we talked about from the State Department, from the media, uh, maybe from personal contacts and you have a pretty robust network uh, to be able to pull information from, you know, I think even the regular traveler can develop that network. Yep. Uh, being able to pull that information. And then that way you, you get a real good, what we call called in the military, a ground truth of, of what's going on. And then of course, you know, part of that is when you get there and then you're taking that information in um, yourself. So, yeah. All right. So, let, you know, let's transition, you know, we, we've already got the information, we've got the data. Now we're prepping for this environment outside of passports and just common sense stuff that you need to have to on travel. person to travel. Right. Um, which, you know, is pretty much common sense. Let's talk about kit. Yeah. What kind of kit do we need to set up and how do we need to set it up for travel? Cause I know, you know, we are survivalist kit that we sell. There's a TSA approved version, Yep. but you know, that TSA approved version, which doesn't have a knife, isn't potentially the TSA approved version when you infill into Tunisia for vacation. Sure. So it just, it just varies, right? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the interest or the good point here that we're bringing up is the fact that there are things that you can take with you survival kit wise and, you know, just having something basic on you. I mean, obviously, Mike and I believe uh, very strongly in that, which is why we have Philcraft Survival. And um, there are things out there that you can pack, you know, a go bag that goes in an overhead bin may have, you know, our TSA approved survival kit. It may have a, you know, something that you read online that would be a good survival kit for the environment you're going to, you know, based off a geographic location. And then you could drill that down to the things that you would like to have that you can't have uh, to take with you. And maybe you purchase those on the local economy. You know? That's a good point. Yeah. We call it COTS, right? Commercial off the shelf. Yeah. But you know, my favorite, if you're doing this, my favorite way to do it, and because I've done it so many times, it, it's it's almost like therapy is doing a layout, yeah. right? Without the first thing I'll do, right? I'll get my bag and I'll lay my bag out. I'll get my passport. I'll get all my ID cards. I'll even get my cash. You know, exchanging currency before you go uh, might be pretty important. Points of contacts, you know, points of contacts for locals, for home. The U.S. Um, embassy in the country. The U.S. embassy in the country. Uh, you're essentially, you know, one of the reasons we put the little field notes, like notebook, inside of our survival bag is because um, inside the survival kit, the minimalist survival kit that we sell, it's a good reference or point of reference to assimilate all that information when you get in the country. Yep. So it's not about like taking notes, you know, dear, dear John letters when you're out and about, it's about the preparation before you go. You know, some of the things that are staples, we, we talk about staples of survival and I won't get in the weeds on this because we have discussed it in other podcasts, but a, one thing you have to have I, this is firsthand experience is you have to have a tourniquet because in most of these countries, I'll, I'll tell you the story. I was in Niger, Africa, and I was doing similar to a J set. Basically I was mentoring some staff that were doing counterterrorism operations against uh, a terrorist network in the, in the country. And so I'm, I'm mentoring high level dudes. So I'm in uniform. I'm in the middle of Niger, which is a shithole. Like uh, no offense to anybody tell, in tell Niger. Tell us what you really think. Yeah, no offense <laughs> to people in Niger, but 
the, the country is garbage. I mean, the country is number one, the country has the highest number of NGOs supporting it. Right. Because it has no infrastructure. So poor. So, it has, it's dirt yeah. poor. It literally is dirt. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel really bad for the people because there's no, uh, there's no industries there either. I mean, there's barely water there. It's it's just a it's in a, a pretty crappy situation. And then on top of that, they're fighting a terrorist organization uh, with Nigeria and Chad. Well, anyways, so I'm in uniform and I'm commuting back and forth, and I'm with this lieutenant colonel, and I'm a sergeant major at the time. So, you know, me and lieutenant colonel are shooting the shit, and we're just doing our normal thing. And we come across this kid who's been hit by a car, and this kid was Nigerian, African, and you know. Africans, period, don't have good vascularity. They're not vascular because they're malnourished. Yeah, they're malnourished, but dehydrated. They, they've evolved. They, obviously, they've evolved to that, right? So it's not affecting them grossly. Right. But I mean, if you give the kid a Gatorade, he's freaking inflate like an <laughs> NFL pro football player. But he, he, there's no veins in their their arms. You can't find a vein. You can barely find a pulse in some of those guys. Yeah, let's clarify. We're not saying all Africans, all right? This was in Nigeria. Yeah, this is in Nigeria. <laughs> I've experienced somebody in South Africa being yeah. like, these guys are dipshits. Yeah. <laughs> so in this country, based off the circumstances, this kid gets hit by a car. And it happened in front of us. We didn't see the actual accident. We rolled up afterwards. But the kid's laying in dirt. And there's probably 10 people standing around him just pointing. And I'm looking at this kid bleeding out from his ass, his femur. And I've actually, you know, I've done this before in this kind of situation. And I knew he potentially had a compromised femur, uh, a broken femur that may have punctured his uh, femoral arteries. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they both big veins run through the legs, but you could bleed out in minutes, sometimes seconds, if not addressed properly. So I immediately put pressure on his hips. And as I'm doing this, I'm in my uniform. These Africans, these Nigerians are freaking out. And finally, I looked at them and I said, hey, I'm a doctor. You know, I'm an Asian. I'm in a uniform. <laughs> yeah. I, think, I, I, I think I could sell it. So I'm like, I'm a doctor. I'm going to help him. And then they knew, they, you know, they understood it's the word. Doogie. <laughs> it's Doogie MD. Yeah. They knew immediately the word doctor. And so they, they echoed it. And then everybody's like, oh, crap, back off this dude. So we backed off. And... I, at that time, I carried my Patagonia go bag, and I, I promote the stealth out of Patagonia bag, and I, I'm going to send it to China and copy it because it's a baller-ass <laughs> bag. And I had two tourniquets in it, two cat tea tourniquets, and I put two tourniquets on this kid, one on each leg high up on his thighs um, because he did have a comp – he had a compound fracture mm -hmm. and uh, one in each leg completely compromised, but no blood was coming out of the wounds, the open wounds. Just bone was sticking out. He was in a world of shit and kid didn't even cry, dude, not even a tear, no complaints. He looked at him and I looked at him and I held his hand. I said, you're going to be all right. I was like rubbing his face, complete and utter trust in me and the situation wasn't even in shock. It was just talking. was like, I'm okay. I'm just in pain. He would squ uh, squirm a little bit in pain, mm -hmm. but nobody knew how to address that situation. When, I waited for the hospital, the ambulance to come because they said the ambulance was going to come. Then I called the embassy mm -hmm. and said, hey, man, we got a kid. They said, we can't do nothing about it. And I don't blame them because, you know, if yeah. they had to address every single person who got hit by a car in Africa, in Niger, they'd be, they'd be bogged down. So I told the, the, the public that was standing around them, now it's a crowd of like 50 people. Mm -hmm. it's kind of, it was kind of nerve wracking because, you know, I have a pistol. Yeah. Me. And as we're, we're talking through this, I told them, I said, hey, if this kid doesn't get an ambulance here in 10 minutes, I'm transporting him myself. And that was like a shitstorm, man. They were like, you, you are not transporting this kid. Like nobody would let me transport him. The Africans wouldn't, the Nigerians wouldn't because they mm -hmm. said it's the process. Well, anyways, long story short, we, we wind up exfilling him. He, he winds up surviving. So I go to the hospital the next day. And dude, you talking about, this is the premier hospital that is taken care of by NGOs, non-government organizations right. that are helping the country yep. with aid, yep. money. This is the premier hospital that getting all the aid. I went in there and it looked like a morgue. I mean, there was rooms. In another instance, the 10-second the version is my driver had a massive heart attack and we brought him to the hospital and nobody was – they let him wait in the waiting room for an hour before me and the lieutenant colonel broke into a pharmacy and, and took the beta blockers and other drugs that he needed to live. Mm -hmm. And so when you're in these countries, 
and you're off the beaten path. You could be on the path. I mean, you could be on their main highway. Oh, yeah. And you break a leg in a car accident, you could die. It could potentially be fatal. It could be fatal. Yeah. And so having a tourniquet, having the proper equipment to self-sustain your life is one of the most important things. Yeah. And we sell the rat tourniquet. And, you know, the guy who uh, made the rat tourniquet is a buddy of ours, Jeff. And, he, you know, he's a ready man network, all these guys. Look, this is the reason I promote the rat tourniquet. Obviously, if I could have a cat tee on me, I would do it. Mm-hmm. I would want 10 cat tees. In fact, I would want an ambulance with a with a paramedic. <laughs> yeah. But when when you don't have the opportunities to, to have that, you got to make do. When you infill into countries that have a counterintelligence and counterterrorism threat of any kind, which we'll talk about a little bit later, they're analyzing everything you bring in that country. If you show up with a cat T with an NSN number on it, they know it's a military type equipment and it just raises these flags yeah. that you don't need to be raised. Right. Because out of the gate, I mean, literally out of the airport gate, once they identify you and peg you as that guy, you potentially are going to have a trail of dudes from that country who are protecting their own, own country and they're going to be surveilling you yeah. and doing all kinds of shady shit that we can't talk about. <laughs> um, so I carry that rat tourniquet because it looks like a piece of bungee. You could stick, it looks like a car part. And somebody looks at that, what is that? Oh, that's bungee to tie up my clothes, to tie up my bag. Yeah. And so, yeah, a rat slash cat tourniquet. Unassuming. Unassuming. It's, it, you have to have one. Yeah. Our survival, minimalist survival kit. We have the staples of survival. You know, fire making, uh, water procurement, shelter, um, and a little bit of first aid. It's the size of a a fat ass three by five card. Yeah. You know, it's just like a, it's three by five Imagine inches. Imagine a three by five three D. Yeah. <laughs> so take a three by five card and make it four inches deep and blow it up. Yeah. I'll take a stack of three by five cards. We probably could have came up with a better analogy than that. It's a brick of gold. It's like a brick. Yeah. And it it fits in any convenient bag. It doesn't look military-ish. No, you are. I mean, you're you are right. It, that thing doesn't take up uh, hardly any room. And again, in a, in a for planning purposes, uh, we feel like if you're traveling without something, right? Because it doesn't have to be a field craft survival kit. But if you're not prepared, then uh, hey, there's there's a higher potential for bad things to happen. We we have groups now picking this thing up, our kit up, in the near future, and. When I was, you know, when I was in the military, when we were in the military, I don't, dude, I don't remember ever packing out anything that was contingency based besides speed balls, which we talked about and go bags that had ammo, food and water. The only, yeah, I mean, really my exposure to it was in long range surveillance and, you know, it was kind of a throwback from the LERP teams from Vietnam, but most teams that that we had in, in uh, F company 51st, like you had survival stuff and, but it was like. You know, iodine tablets iodine tablets fire starter um you know all the the basics that we normally you know that we're talking about and, yeah and we kept those things in our kit you know because typically at that time uh we were still doing what we called tactical reconnaissance and we were six guys you know away from the mothership if you will in uh austere environments and so you know if the shit hit the fan and you had to e and e or something like that you needed a survival kit you you know, I've, I've been issued two survival kits in special operations that I wish I still had because I have one of them. It's a little patch kit that I was issued to by special operations command and a bigger one. But the bigger one had like fish hooks. Yeah. I'm in fucking the Middle East. Yeah. You know, I don't eat fish hooks. <laughs> I, you know, Kurt mentioned this. When you when you plan these, this kit that you put together, the staples are the staples. If you want to listen to the staples, listen to the podcast on it. You have to have that shit because you're going to die from exposure. You're going to die from um, um, dehydration. Yep. And you have to have those things to, to be able to survive. That doesn't take up a lot of space. But outside of that, you have to plan according to the country you're going into. Yep. If you're going to Africa, you might want to look at indigenous plants and animals that are in that environment that you could do something about. If you get stung by a freaking African bee, you're going to be in a world of hurts. Yeah. Some of those you might be shit out of luck. Yeah, you might be dead. <laughs> the snakes that, that are that are there, I mean, it, the the conditions are harsh. Maybe it's not even that. Maybe it's maybe we're talking about, hey, you're you're in Morocco, you're going to Morocco, and they have 
disease, they have viruses. Those are the kind of considerations that when you're, when I came out of, I think it was Yemen, I came out of Yemen, no, no, I came out of Niger and I was exposed to that kid's blood. The Air Force Academy wanted to shut me down and quarantine me because they're like, oh, this dude, just, <laughs> he, he's got Ebola. Yeah. You know, one of the, a great resource also that we were talking about this morning is um, on that, that travel, it's actually travel.state.gov. Um, when you look under there, there's a traveler's checklist and, it, and it's in the form of a downloadable PDF card. And it actually covers uh, your destination information, uh, safety and security information, crisis planning, health precautions, money matters, and then special considerations for uh, travelers. You know, it goes into female travelers, older travelers. If you're on a cruise ship, travelers with disabilities, students, uh, volunteers abroad, just it's got a pretty robust list of, of different things. And so, um, you know, like a lot of the planning uh, things that we did in special operations, we had formats that we went by, right? So uh, the cool thing about these websites is they give you a format. So you're actually, you don't have to try to remember all this shit. You can just go down a checklist and have a, you know, an organized way to keep track of everything. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, that's where it starts with like in the planning process. Yep. You make the checklist, you lay out all your stuff, um, you see what you're deficient in because you, you could see it and uh, you start communicating and collecting that data. Um, that's going to allow you to fill those gaps of uh, all the stuff you need. One thing we, we talked about in a, a podcast before, but it's important here, is establishing what your new everyday carry is going to be. Yeah. I know for us overseas, I remember laying out my stuff every morning, you know, even as a contractor. You know, I had my Glock pistol. I had an extra spare mag. I had my my documents for that country, being in that country. I had a bloodshed, mm -hmm. which is, you know, a bloodshed is a, a, a piece of material, typically an American flag that, that has instructions in the country's language yep. that if something happens, you could uh, negotiate using the bloodshed to return you, you know, if you're behind enemy lines or you're in a, a, a bad situation to return you back to friendly forces or friendly people. Yeah. Uh, it could work on cops. It could work on, you know, a, a shitty, you know, traffic accident, which I've used it before. Also cash. I always carried cash because in these countries, out, really outside of America, every country is a bartering system. Yep. They work off of, uh, people call it corruption, but that's, that's literally a merchant trade system. Yeah. That's how they trade. That's how they barter. That's how you get stuff accomplished is through the, through, through paper. And so if you have money, it can almost get you out of anything in those countries. It's a good point. What else everyday carry wise? Uh, the tourniquet, I would say everyday carry your tourniquet. It should be on your person, not on your bag. Yeah. If your bag is, you know, ganked and you have, you know, something on your person, like a, a rat tourniquet through your belt loop. Um, it's on you and not anywhere else. I think, uh, you know, just talking about EDC is um, making sure that wherever you're going that, you know, like we talked about, if there's something that you want for your everyday carry. Uh, you know, there's some there's some decisions there that you have to make as far as personal safety and what you're willing to deal with because, you know, you may be in a foreign country and if you decide to buy a pistol on the local market and get caught with that as a a foreign national, you know, they- You'd be on locked up abroad yeah, on Discovery Channel. You know, so uh, obviously there's resources out there that, uh, that, you, can, that you can look at um, to find things that are a little bit more unassuming, right? We've been talking about that. The pins, the travel pins. Yeah, I think uh, I'm not 100% on this, but I think Surefire makes something like that. And then um, there's a couple other companies. Gerber where, makes one. Yeah, that, you know, it's, uh, it's something that you can use in a self-defense type situation. Um, it may not be a knife or an, and it may not be a pistol, but at least it's something that, you know, if you had to break contact, uh, that you may be able to get a strike and then break contact, and it's it's actually an effective tool. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, another thing I, I remember used to be in my ADC in Libya is I was carry I was carry a sat phone. Yep. I carry a Iridium Thoria sat phone, and my Thoria sat phone uh, was baller, man. It was like a baller ass phone. I've got a good story with geolocating type stuff. Tell it. I want to hear this. Yeah. So, um, so one of my trips, uh, I did in central Asia for about eight months. Uh, I was in a former Soviet Republic and, um, we actually had some civilians, uh, that were traveling in a pretty austere environment, uh, us citizens. And one of the guys, uh, got, uh, what we call altitude sickness. 
Um, we were in a pretty, like I said, austere, remote part of the world. And uh, this guy got sick. Well, the U.S. Embassy had to organize a kind of a search and rescue party to pull this guy um, out of the altitude because he was in a bad, he was getting, you know, there basically altitude sickness can turn into like high altitude pulmonary edema that it, for, it's called HAPE. And uh, some people can get high altitude cerebral edema. If you get either of those and they progress, uh, you're probably going to die. So obviously this was a big deal. And, and the help call went out to the embassy. I happened to actually be kind of on what we call in the military, which is staff duty, which we monitored a phone. And I got a call from from stateside from uh, from this guy's parents. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> and they were like, hey, our kid is in trouble. Uh, we need help. And so this thing progressed. Well, what what we came to find out is there are companies out there and I don't remember what the names of them are, but they actually have geolocating devices when you do overseas travel that if you get into an emergency situation, you can basically activate a beacon that sends a distress signal to a civilian company uh, that will actually, uh, obviously these guys paid some paid money to, to have this done. Well, it wasn't even an AeroVac. They basically, the way the system was set up is that this thing locates, um, it locates the company once the beacon's been activated. And then the company has the responsibility based off of a contract that was signed to, uh, you know, to get a hold of the state department. Well, this guy, we had multiple calls coming in. We had the company, the family, um, so there was a bunch of people and, and, uh, long story short, it, we were successful at getting this guy back and safe, um, because he had, you know, they had done this planning consideration where they had this company, uh, with, with this beacon that could locate them. And it was kind of an interesting deal because when they got, the guy was evac by a helo out, out in the hinterlands and his, the crew of guys that he was with, they were mountain climbing and rafting and doing all this stuff. And um, and he got evac'd, and they just kept going. <laughs> so, That's awesome, man. I've, yeah. I've I've heard of that. I've actually uh, consulted with a company before that had that kind of background, and that's pretty cool because it's it's that whole uh, that proof of life thing where you know you go overseas and you get potentially in a situation, especially if you're doing outdoor stuff or there's a potential of kidnapping, yeah, where you have somebody that's basically your QRF, yep, for medical considerations and everything else. It's it's expensive. Yeah. But you know, it's, it's a consideration. And I think the, the everyday carry versions of that are, you know, you have a, a cell phone and you know, they have the ability to geolocate those cell phones in, in a situation where you get lost. And I know I used to carry that with me and, and also my EDC, I had a, a Breitling emergency watch, mm -hmm. hella expensive watch, but it's a, it's a great tool where you could pull out an antenna from the watch and then transpond on the SOS frequency and which alerted, you know, every aircraft flies on that frequency. So if they hear it, it pings and they have to report it. Right. And so uh, I always find myself thinking about the contingency. If I ended up in the middle of the desert in Libya, I, I would be in a bad predicament anyway. And if I could get a beacon, beacon or transponder out, anything, at that anything point. at that point, <laughs> it, it, it helped me. You know, something we, we briefly discussed is having having the communication with family members with uh, people on the ground and people back in the states because you know when you go into a, a foreign country you potentially could be blacked out by uh, the most random but also routine things when we're in iraq every night the electricity goes out mm -hmm. and the power grid goes down not because it's some uh, surreptitious master plan master plan it's because the heat yeah, the heat and, and the power grid. The or... power grid, they can't, <laughs> they can't handle it, so they, it shuts down and you'll lose everything. Um, so one recommendation for comms is, you know, I have I carry a cell phone. My iPhone 7 is unlocked. And if I travel, I could drop another SIM, GSM SIM in it. Overseas, I don't think they run a lot of CDMA. It's mostly GSM. So you can infill in the country or you can order online the GSM cards for that country plus the minutes. So when you hit the ground, you already have a foreign cell phone, you have a point of contact, and then you send out your text when you hit the ground like, hey, honey, I'm okay. I've infilled in Greece. I'm alive. You're doing your pro words with the wife. Oh, yeah. Touchdown. <laughs> touchdown. Yeah. Over. I, I say again, Irene. I mean, touchdown. Yeah. So that's, that's all important stuff as far as um, uh, communicating your location because nobody knows where the hell you're at in that country. And if the grid goes down, you are lost in the sauce. You mentioned it 
doing coordination potentially with State Department. Um, have you ever experienced like, because I know it's possible, but who's the points of contact at the State Department? You just walk up and knock on the door and be like, hey, I'm, I'm whoever, or is there people that you could specifically talk to? So one of the, one of the resources is using that state.gov account because, uh, you know, open source, you can usually obviously see who the ambassador is, the deputy chief of mission, uh, which is obviously the assistant ambassador. Um, and then other folks that are working inside of that embassy, whether it's the consular office, the RSO, regional um, security officer. Yeah, exactly. And typically speaking, the, the RSO, um, is the, you know, he's the authority, at least to my understanding after, after doing this a couple times is, uh, he's kind of the authority that makes sure all American citizens and country are safe. So if there's an issue, uh, typically, it's going to a local staff uh, that's hired by the U.S. government. Um, and, you know, obviously, there's just not enough RSO personnel to go around to accomplish that mission. So they have to use local nationals. So you'll have kind of what's called, at least based off of my experience, a local guard force. And they help the RSO make sure that American citizens are safe in country. That's Now, I wonder if you could, because I remember being a civilian in Libya as, as a consultant for business, I had the RSO because I had a personal relationship with him on speed dial. So I would tell him, hey, there's a traffic jam at this location or, hey, shit's going bad in this location. And he was kind of like my QRF. I wonder if that's something that you could do as a civilian or at a minimum communicate because I know all their stuff and their information is posted. Yeah, it's absolutely. open source. It is. And that that state.gov site, you can actually um, uh, I talked about it a little bit before, but depending on what country you're going to. You can get all that data off of, uh, you know, there's a link that'll take you to the embassy on state.gov and, and typically it'll have a lot of that information there. And then, you know, if, if you want to get a, a real warm and fuzzy, if you're really that worried about it, you know, there's nothing wrong with checking in um, with with that embassy and, and the RSO's office and just letting them know that you're in town, especially for NGOs and things like that, you know, yeah. and, and then that way you're at least on somebody's radar screen. So if something does happen you know, they're tracking that you're in the country. I, I think one of the most important aspects, you know, we're, we're basically past kit, you know, preparation. Now you're going to infill in the country. One of the most important aspects is getting situational awareness. Yeah. I know a lot of people, I know a lot of civilians that, you know, they hit the ground and then they want to go and mess around. They want to go to the club, the bar, the sites. The most important thing is to build time into infill where you hit the ground and then you get atmospherics of what's going on. Not only just the pulse of patterns of life and behavior and how, how things are happening, uh, which you could do visually, you could do um, by assimilating in the environment, but also by getting in a vehicle and running the routes and figuring out, you know, how far is it from my hotel to the airport? What's the closest hospital that's in the vicinity of where I'm located? How do I nav there? What's my method of transportation? You know, do I have the appropriate amount of money to get to that location? Yep. So all this contingency planning, which is built around situation awareness, building your situation awareness is, is hugely important. Yeah. What, what's some things that you would do? Like if you infield in the ground and you hit, hit the ground immediately um, and you're trying to blend into that environment, what's some things that you do right off the bat? I mean, what it's for me, it's, you know, obviously, depending on where you're going, it may be hard to blend in. You know what I mean? I'm yeah. a white dude, almost six feet tall, blue eyes, five so, foot four, <laughs> two, five foot four, 300 pounds. Gunt. Yeah. <laughs> Gunt life. No. Um, but one of the, you know, I go back to, to kind of our background in special forces and, and that may be linking up with a trusted local and you may be able to figure out how to do that through a network of people prior to getting there and kind of, uh, you know, using that person to help be your local guide, you know, if, if it's a, and there's, you know, there's a way you have to, to do that, to vet that person. Um, and, and, and it's based off of the resources that you have. So if it's, you're talking to people that have traveled to that country and that's the guy they use and he's always been a solid dude, or, you know, it's a female, Hey, uh, that could be the person to go with, you know, and they, and you know, they're not going to steer you in the wrong direction, but you know, it's kind of foolish to believe that you're going somewhere for the first time and all of a sudden you're just going to have, you know, you've done all your preparation, you did your planning, but you're not going to know the area like a local is going to know the area. So 
for us, you know, a lot of times it would be, you know, linking up with an interpreter or something like that, somebody that, that we'd used in the past uh, to help give us better situational awareness. And then, you know, the big thing is, uh, and Mike covered it, is, is talking about routes, times, and, and, and just when you're out driving and in your, you're in the local populace, uh, you're picking up that information, you're taking all that in, and that helps make educated decisions versus, um, you know, a decision on the fly. You have to make a decision on the fly because the country is unstable or you need to go to the hospital. Uh, obviously, you want to have those things planned out prior to having to execute that movement. Yeah, we call it we call it a rehearsal, right? And we, we do rehearsals via maps. You don't have to do like an actual real life rehearsal, but that's optimally what you always want to do. Yeah. Like if you could, if you could, I don't want to use that term. I almost used a, a term I'm not supposed to use. <laughs> if you do a rehearsal run of uh, the path that you've taken, then you could plan for those contingencies where you ride down that path and realize now there's a car accident or just traffic patterns of that day. You know, I've been in foreign countries where if you go to a certain intersection at a time of day, you could be gridlocked for an hour and you're not moving versus if you know back streets and different routes, you can start getting the lay of the land. And it's all about time too. It's when you're going out, you're developing this situational awareness through atmospherics, through experience. And honestly, you're just building a, a good, better picture of this, the, the environment you're in, which is always smart to do when you infill. I mean, you just don't, you don't want to go into anything blindly yeah. um, and then having to depend on everybody else to bail you out. The great takeaway you said was, you know, Hey, you have to have a local national, optimally you want a local national to, to help you out because they have the best situation awareness. Don't trust them. Never trust a, a foreign national. I think when you go into a country, tourist and tourist <laughs> guides, um, I think uh, taxi drivers, people who just live in that environment and they really have no incentive, their incentive is working. Yeah. You know, like a taxi driver that you approach on your own, you could probably be assured he's not linked to terrorism <laughs> and he's not going to be, he's not going to have the incentive. You'd never say never, but that's a better likelihood than trying to map at, map out somebody deliberately or even looking up online where somebody could deliberately put something out there just to bait your ass in. Oh yeah. I don't know if you know this, but you know, you know, Americans are a high commodity in foreign countries because they know we have money. Mm -hmm. uh, so most of it's kidnapped for ransom if it's a threat. And then obviously the other threat is counterterrorism. Right. We talked a little bit about it and you know, we won't go into too much detail, but I wanted to tell tell everybody about counterintelligence versus counterterrorism. Right. We've, we've worked in both environments. This kind of plays in for, I think, in layman terms for people that are that are tuning in is uh, this goes along with security planning, really. You yeah. know, and, and we talked about a little bit situational awareness, but now we're kind of breaking it down into security concerns. So, you know, we talked about planning for the travel. We talked about resources where you can kind of have an organized planning sequence. And then we talked about, you know, some of the, the little things that we bring in, you know, whether it's medical gear, or survival kit and stuff like that. And then uh, talking about routes and, you know, and uh, mobility and, and all these different things, right, to get us to and from to airports and hospitals and important locations. And now we're just kind of tying in what we always uh, thought about as well, you know, because typically we weren't working in real nice places, but we had to be concerned with our security. Well, like Mike said, Americans are high commodities in, in some of these different places. And so you have to be you have to have some type of a security mindset. So breaking it down the way we are right now is is just a way to kind of pick that apart and, and get at it. Yeah, I think, you know, like it, counterintelligence and counterterrorism could be brackets of kind of your posture. They could be uh, definitive measures of your posture or representations of your posture. Because like when me and you were going into war zones, we're for the most part doing overt operations and there's, you know, we're flying black helicopters on top of rooftops. They, it, we, they know we're there. It's different. But when you're going to visit somewhere that has a threat like counterterrorism, it's completely different because they might be targeting you deliberately, but it, but they might be doing it hastily. So if you're not prepared for that kind of environment and then, you know, you're arbitrarily walking through, you know, a market square yeah. and you're not understanding the full counterterrorism picture, you could be presenting yourself as a really easy target right. for an opportunist terrorist who's yeah. trying to who's trying to kill you so you know counterintelligence deals in in exactly what it is 
uh, intelligence. You know, every country, including our own, wants to gather information on the other guys um, because the more we know, the more we could be ahead of what's to come. Sure. So when you go in these foreign countries, if you're an American, you're already a target because potentially, you know, number one, me and Kurt going to any foreign country that that deals with high levels of counterintelligence and counterterrorism environments, we're a big target because potentially they look at us like we some countries peg us. I've been pegged before as a special operations guy because mm-hmm. I'm a big dude. I got tattoos. I look like I'm squared away because I'm not looking like a, a dumpy a gut. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I'm I typically was able to get in unnoticed. <laughs> <laughs> You're always low biz. They're like, that dude's 5'4", 350. Uh, He's extremely out of shape. <laughs> Dumpy bastard. It's, you know, it's funny. Is, you know, that, that reminds me of, you know, when we wanted to do low biz ops, it's hard for us because we could peg our own, right? We go oh, into yeah. a, a Walmart it's like dogs sniffing asses. Oh, yeah. We know. We know the soft ass. We know special operations, guys. Well, you know the soft ass. I do. I know it so well. Um, so we, we, we understand. But, you know, guys who study intelligence, uh, guys who their job is that, they could peg you in a second. And so you want to reduce your signature and not make yourself a, an overt target. Yeah. So if you're coming into an environment and you infill into Morocco – and you're wearing a Hawaiian shirt like every other dude on the plane. What do, no, Pipe Hitters Union. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pipe Hitters Union, a, a, a multi-cam ball cap. <laughs> you know, you, yeah. You, a, a Sunto Watch, Oakley's. You, you don't want to be that guy because you don't want to bring unwanted attention to yourself. So blend in with the locals because once counter or counterintelligence elements start looking at you, they, they're not going to take their eye off the ball. Yeah. You know, and that, you know, that's terminology, but that's, I mean, that's a reference point to, Hey, if they've pegged you, they want to follow you and see where you're rolling. Yeah. They want to see your patterns of life because to them, you're a threat. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we go into foreign countries, we're typically out there for tourism or <laughs> they're targeting assholes. When you're actually going to a place to just be a tourist, I don't even know if I can get in that mindset just to like walk around and enjoy yeah. the sights because I'm thinking about security. We're ruined. You guys don't have to be. Yeah. Don't be ruined. <laughs> Go to Libya and enjoy the sights and sounds. <laughs> yeah. um, no, but I think, I mean, we're making, you know, kind of the way I look at some of this too is we have an ex- we have experiences that are on, you know, if you look at this on a, on a spectrum, you know, we're way to the right, right? Because of the things that we've experienced. But I think there's important lessons that you can take from this. Uh, even if you're a civilian and you may be working for an NGO and you may be going to a pretty austere environment who, you know, where they may not have a stable government, you know? And so you might be going to Chicago. Yeah. Chicago. <laughs> We're headed there in a week. Yeah. Fuck. I wouldn't go to Chicago without like body armor. <laughs> my flannel shirt. We're digressing. <laughs> yeah. Counterterrorism. Now counterterrorism is completely different because, yeah. you know, you talk about semi-permissive to permissive environments. These are environments where you don't expect to get shot in the face by a terrorist. We're moving freely. You're moving freely in that environment. But now it's a counterterrorism threat. So what's the difference? Well, I think, you know, kind of the big ones and and there is good information on that state.gov site. And it it talks specifically um, about terrorist threats and it talks specifically about, you know, potentially not. Uh, planning your vacation or whatever you're going to do and being around a lot of other foreigners, you know, because unfortunately this day and age, um, ISIS and all these, uh, you know, Islamic radicals are targeting Western tourists. Why? Because it's easy, you easy know, target. Fat, yeah, exactly. Target. And, and I think, you know, the one here of, uh, you know, recent news was that Ariana Grande, Grande, however you say her name, the pop singer yeah. um, in England. And, you know, they killed a bunch of innocent kids, kids. But I mean, the, you know, the important takeaway to that is those are the types of things that they're looking at. Now, I'm also a huge proponent of not letting some terrorist asshole dictate my daily life. Um, so, but, you know, I think the important takeaway here is that there needs to be a certain amount of vigilance that you need to be exercising, um, and making, you know, educated decisions on, you know, when and where you're going. Yeah. You don't want to hit the back streets of Libya looking for the cool chai spots, (laughs) uh, in the middle of the night. You know, when I lived in Libya, I lived in a house by myself and it was just me, my AK Frank, that was my my AK's (laughs) name. And then um, I had a driver who would come every once in a while facilitate movement, but there was gunfights all over the t- all the time. 
And, you know, I'd come out on the rooftop and there'd be anti-aircraft fire and just mad drama all over the place. But I, it's funny is I felt safer in those situations because I knew, I knew my own plan. Yeah. You know, I had rehearsed on my own, my own bug out. I had a bag loaded with ammo, all my stuff, my AK by my bed. I knew how to bug out of my room, out of the house, the route that I could take on both ends of my, my house on the compound that I was in. And you know, how I was going to evacuate that area. And I knew that some element of security was me knowing my own plan and that advertising that, you know, when you're stuck in a hotel with one entrance and one exit, because there's no code in that place to, to build a hotel, it's an easy target. And if something goes wrong as minor as a fire, you potentially are at the mercy of that catastrophe. Uh, just by that circumstance. Mm-hmm. So have control. What, what I mean is like have control of your own destiny. When I go into a hotel room and I find the first thing I do is when I go to a room, I identify where the fire exit is going to be. And then I walk the hallway to where that fire exit is going to be. And then I walk the back route out. Typically it's where the, the cook or the restaurant or the, the kitchen would be. Mm-hmm. And so I do that as a part of my own standard operating procedure in life. Yeah. Not just a, a special circumstance. Yeah. I mean, we, we call it, we have, you know, we break it down in all these military terms. I think a lot of times just because of Mike and I's exposure and the amount of time we spent doing that. Um, but it is great. It's like life planning things, right? It's why, like, is, why do we get so excited about this? Like, <laughs> I want to go to a foreign country just so I could do all this stuff and check my little box and be like, yeah. I'm cool. <laughs> these are our adrenaline highs. <laughs> so, so awesome. Um, yeah, man. I, I think uh, foreign travel, you know, it's amazing to me talking to more and more people, how much people don't travel. Mm-hmm. You know, we live in a bubble of protection provided by oceans yeah. and it's, it's very easy for us to get in a sense to me, it's complacency where you, you watch the media, that's your portal to information and it's doing nothing but spewing this epic uh, shit wave, shit wave <laughs> of terrorism that's you know, infecting the world, you know, and I'll use the, 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 uh, Libya situation because Yemen's a shithole, no matter how you look at it. And that place could just evaporate off the earth and whatever. But Libya is a beautiful country, man. And it's on the Mediterranean. It's surrounded by semi-stable countries mm-hmm. in, in Egypt and in uh, Tunisia and uh, Algeria as well. But when, you, when I'm on the beach there, I remember sitting on the beach and looking and admiring the history because it has an amazing history, you know, from the Marine Corps doing the first, you know, surreptitious uh, naval assault, uh, amphibious assault mm-hmm. in 1801, between 1801 and 1805, I think it was 1804, they did that. And there's actually Marines that are buried in the in the, the sands of, of Tripoli in the, mm-hmm. the mass of the USS, I want to say it's Philadelphia which was shot in a naval battle off the coast is still there from 18, the 1800s yeah. from the Barbary Wars. And you look down and there's Roman ruins there. And, you know, it's got, it's an amazing history, amazing culture, amazing food, amazing people. And if it wasn't for the, the pockets of terrorism, then it wouldn't be painted as this epic shithole. Yeah. But you go to America and you go to a, a town, I mentioned Chicago because it's got one of the highest crime rates in the United States, more so almost in the Iraq war in the same period of time. I think actually more in that same period of time, uh, the Iraq war. And you could find yourselves in neighborhoods that do the same thing. Yeah. That doesn't mean you don't want to go to Chicago and explore and be part of that culture. So I would encourage people, all these things that me and Kurt are telling you aren't, are, aren't meant to, to drive paranoia. Yeah, exactly. It's meant to drive a level of comfort to where you could enjoy life. If you go to these places and the only thing you're focused on is being blown up by a terrorist, <laughs> you probably are not going to enjoy your time with yeah. your old lady drinking fucking <laughs> chai and eating fucking goat. <laughs> um, it may not be Libya that you're wanting to go to either. Yeah, but- don't go to Libya. That's a bad place to go right now. I think the point, it's great though. I mean, it's a great point. It's perspective. And, um, you know, Mike brings up really solid points. You look at metropolitan cities in the United States and the murder rate is, you know, skyrocketed or whatever. So um, you got to put that stuff into perspective. Our goal on this podcast is to give you tools uh, to, you know, 
is to, to plan and observe and, you know, be prepared and survive, right. If something happens. So, um, and, and that's kind of what we want to drive home. You know, one of the things that we're doing coming up is doing running the ops course and the ops course, it stands for observe, prepare, survive. And we're doing two of those courses. You can find them on uh, philcraftsurvival.com in Durango. We've got two scheduled ops courses during the month of August. And the premise behind that course is to teach people survival through stress mitigation. Right. Because the first thing that happens, the first thing that happens during an event is your stress, you know, spikes. And so the reason people live and die in those situations is because they have certain levels of training and then that stress affects their abilities to think through problems. And if it's overwhelming them, they make mistakes that lead to injury or death. So we teach how to mitigate that, but also the psychology behind it. Like why does your brain think this way and how can you trick your mind or make your mind think something different? That's different. You know, we talk about survival. Uh, we're not te- we're teaching modern survival mindset. We're not teaching, is that an acronym? Modern survival <laughs> mindset, MSM. <laughs> we're teaching MSM, <laughs> glutamine. Um, so this MSM that we're teaching is based off uh, the mindset over everything else because you could have a bag of tricks, a bag of kit, yeah. but if you don't have the mindset- You didn't to- train with it. Yeah. yeah. How are you going to uh, propel all those skill sets if you don't even have the will to live? So. We go over that. We put you in a, in some situations and scenarios. That's a real good course. So we encourage you guys, if you're interested in doing overseas travel, the prerequisite should be our course prior oh, to yeah. leaving anywhere. Ops course. Ops course. Thanks for tuning into this episode. Uh, up and coming, you know, me and Kurt are going to be really busy, which is good for us, good for our brains <laughs> yeah. and our families and girlfriends. <laughs> we, moving forward, are going to be focusing more on survival. You know, we are in an environment that is a good representation of surviving, you know, in an environment. So we're surviving, you know, I'm looking right now outside at mountains and trees. We're at 8,000 feet right now. Eight, we're at 8,000 feet. <laughs> looking up, yeah. Looking up at, you know, 10 to 14 where we live. So it's amazing here. Yeah. So expect more survival stuff from us. Expect uh, more clothing ideas. We actually have, I'll start plugging it now, I guess, because it's <laughs> yeah. all mine. Uh, but we're doing a Kickstarter campaign and we'll be doing that probably released in July, August timeframe to where we started, where me and Kurt are going to do our own clothing line. But we want to do it based off of the the demand. Uh, we're not, we're realists. We're yeah. not, we're, we want to remain optimistic, but we want to re- remain uh, real. And if there's no need in the market space for what we're developing and what we're making, which we'll talk about later, then we're not going to do it. So if you're willing to give us a chance in that in that space, give us the money to fund the actual clothing that you'll get and the the brand and idea, then we're all about it. That's what we want to do. Yeah. Because we don't want to just be in our own bubble, developing our own <laughs> shit, selling it to each other, yeah. making each other feel good. Yeah. So yeah, we appreciate the support, man. If you guys want to check us out on social media, my Instagram's a personal one, Soft Survivor, SOS Survivor. And my, uh, our business, Philcraft Survival. Yep. And you can find me at Kurt underscore Team Philcraft. Yep. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode. I think it was a good episode for us because it shook out a lot of ideas and things. They always do. They always do. <laughs> I mean, we just wing this shit. We just make it up as we go. <laughs> That's um, not always true. <laughs> no, no. There's a big whiteboard in front of us as references. But yeah, we look forward to future episodes, especially on the subject matter. One last thing uh, I want to ask of you guys, if you are listening and you give a shit, we're looking for people who survived different things in life. Cancer, triumph over, you know, trials and tribulations. Yeah, it could be anything. Personal Heart attack, adventurous, automo- whatever category automobile it is. crash. If you have a perspective, if you have a story, we're in, I'm interested in that because I think, you know, j- just like the Tim Ferriss thing where he's dissecting and breaking down what makes people great to improve yourself. We want that same information because we want to help you guys survive and learning vicariously through others' ex- others' experiences is the best way to do that. Yeah. So yeah, looking forward to that. In fact, Kurt's father, who was a uh, a decorated Vietnam War veteran, uh, an infantry officer, we, we're going to have him on soon via Skype, hopefully, and be able to discuss his takeaways because you know that generation, those generations, past generations of the war fighters, have some of the most important information to you know potentially give to the 
you know, next generation of warriors. Yes, absolutely. Cool, man. All right, guys, we appreciate it. And until next time, stay alert, stay alive.